0: All right, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Remember, as we are reading, that this is God's word. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May this word of the Lord comfort our hearts and make us bold as missionaries. You may have a seat.
1: Good morning, good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm part of the teaching team and I get to walk us through this text here this morning. Uh, When I was 17 was when my wife first agreed to date me. First agreed to uh, uh, call me her boyfriend and here's kind of how it happened well i had a crush on her for a couple of years and really wanted to date her and she kept dating a bunch of other idiots which is how I'm sure they're fine people, but to me, they're idiots, you know, and, and I kept, I, I really liked her, and I kept kind of pursuing her, and she would uh, say yes to go to dances with me as a friend, and it was pretty painful for me, but I was like, I'll take what I can get, that's fine, and then eventually, about right before her senior year of high school, she ended up saying that she liked me back, which was kind of like a really big deal for me, and so I went right away, I was super stoked about it, and I was all excited, and I t- started telling her, um, I want you to call me your boyfriend, and I want to call you my girlfriend, and she was like, chill out, like, this is, a lot really fast, but I really wanted to throw the label on it, and I was—it was a big deal to me that they would have this label because that would have given me like the security and the label that I wanted. You know, there's debate whether I liked her or if I liked the label. Which one of those things happened? But eventually, she, she wouldn't—she wouldn't date me formally. She was just kind of like comfortable getting to know each other, and I was a little too eager for that. So eventually, I gave her this ultimatum, and I said, "Well, here's the deal: either you're going to call me your boyfriend, or I'm going to stop talking to you." And. And she responded with, fine, I'll be your girlfriend, which I took as like, nice, here we go, like, we're, we're now where we're supposed to be, and it was really great. And then uh, she had a terrible three weeks and broke up with me three weeks later because of everything I just talked about as all the reason you need. And then later on, I got over the pressuring for the title and started uh, stopped doing that and now we're married so it worked out worked out okay. But it was a it was a bumpy road getting there. But kinda like but think now when I look back and think about all the reasons why she was resistant to wanting to put a label on it, a lot of it has to do with all the baggage that comes with that type of label. You accept that label, and there's all these unwritten assumptions of responsibilities that now you're supposed to have. You have to update your Facebook status. You have to uh, say things to other people. Like, and there's all that comes along with that label and receiving... That label, and so it wasn't that she was opposed to dating me. She would never be opposed to that, but that was. It was. Actually, that was actually, that was part of it too. It was mostly though she was opposed to the label that came with uh, dating me, which is fine, and I'm over it now. But uh, what you see in this passage is that the is that the the church gets a label for the first time. They really kind of had been Jews for a while. They talked about the way of following Jesus but in this passage it says in the end of verse 27 and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians and so this label comes and all of a sudden now they're this distinct people mix of Jew and Greek and now that creates all this opportunity for all these assumed baggage that gets wrapped up in with the label. And for a lot of people in this room who might have been Christians for many years, um, a lot of times I have to ask ourselves the question is, have we taken the time to count the cost of that label? Because a lot of baggage comes with the word label. I mean with the word, not with the word label, with with the label Christian. A lot of baggage comes along with that. You can't watch the news for five minutes without seeing these loaded terms getting thrown around in a whole bunch of different ways, but it's weighty for us to think about is, what is the baggage that really comes with the label of Christian? Because for a long time they assumed that just kind of all Americans are Christians, or that all certain types of people are Christians, or that all Republicans are Christians, or that all all these different people are Christians, but what is the baggage that comes with the label Christian? How have we done work with that? How have we wrestled with that? Um, The third commandment, Exodus 27, says this, "'You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain.'" And growing up, I kind of assumed that that meant just not using God's name as an expletive or as a way of just kind of expressing anger, just kind of loftily tossing it out. And while that's probably true in a sense, what this verse really is talking about here is you shall not take on or take up or carry the Lord's name in vain. Like if you're going to take the name of the Lord on you and go about walking through your life, there's a sense that you should recognize that that's a weighty thing. That I've had friends in different circumstances and in different environments who are doing things that are obviously against God's will, who are obviously dehumanizing to people in certain ways, whether it's treating workers poorly or uploading inappropriate things online, and then when it goes really well for them, they say, to the glory of God. (laughs) And you go, is that how it works? Do you get to just do whatever you want and then say, to God's glory at the end, and then that's how it works? But this invoking God's name, this taking God's name on ourselves, if we call ourselves Christians, there's a lot that goes along with that. And this third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Now, these Christians here are called Christians for the first time. And for all of us in this room, what does it mean for us if we take on the name of the Lord? How weighty is that? How much does that label affect the way we view ourselves? And so in this passage that we just read, we're going to see four things that we lose and one thing that we gain when we take on the name Christian. So in this passage, I'm going to walk through it. I have some bullet points here, but four things that we lose and one thing that we gain when we take on the name Christian. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to walk through this passage one more time. Will you pray? God, I thank you for your grace, I thank you for your wisdom, I thank you for your word. I pray for all the people who call themselves Christians in this room that we can be given a clear vision of what that entails, of what that means. That you'd help us count the cost. I pray for all the people in this room who don't call themselves Christians. There are a variety of reasons why they may not. a big one might be all the Christians who take the Lord's name in vain. I pray that all of our hearts can be softened and that we can uh, get a better picture of who you are and who you're calling us to be as a result of being here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. The first thing we lose is our right to be pessimistic, our right to see the world through darkly colored lenses. So read with me in verse 19, so it's Acts 11:19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So right there we see that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was a big player in the church, he was full of the Spirit, he was a great contributor to the kingdom of God, he was unashamed of the gospel, he loved everyone, he was one of the first um, minorities who stepped up into the church leadership. He gets stoned to death for preaching the gospel by the Jews. And you can imagine that if you're Stephen, especially Stephen, or Stephen's close friends, in Acts 7, Stephen gets stoned to death, and all you see is how bad the situation is. All you can see is, I thought we were starting a movement, I thought this was gonna be a, a good deal, I thought God's power was working through this, I thought blank, 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 and then persecution happens and murder happens. Some of you are in the midst of experiencing all types of pain, um, deaths of relatives, loss of many different kinds, and all that you can see right now is how negative and how bad it is. That's totally fair. But what we see here in Acts 11, 19 is that the church flees that persecution and they go out and away from where the evil persecution and murders are happening and they go about spreading out all over the area and as they go verse 20 says that the hand of the Lord is with them and they are preaching the Lord Jesus and many people are coming to faith. Do you think that Stephen as he's being stoned to death knows that four chapters later that his persecution and his death was gonna further people hearing about the resurrection of Jesus all over the world? Not a chance. Not a chance. Do you think Stephen's friends on the day of Stephen's murder were going, hey man, think positive. No, nor should they have been. That's not how it works. Stephen's death was objectively terrible. It was horrible. And all of his friends, and him included, should have felt the right and the freedom to mourn and feel that pain and go, this is terrible. However, that being true doesn't dismiss the fact that this is also true, that we serve a God who never wastes pain of any kind. We serve a God who does not call good bad, but takes that's what is bad and is able to work all things together for good according to his mission in our flourishing. And so when Stephen dies, it looks only bad, but in our God's sovereignty and how good he is, he uses that bad for the sake of good that because of Stephen's death, because of what was going on there, because of the evil that was taking place in one place, God works it together in his beautiful, majestic, storytelling way and is able to mobilize his people to preach the gospel to people who they otherwise would not have gone to. So here's the question I have for us looking at this. Is Stephen didn't see the good, but yet he still endured in faith and believed? If you are in the midst of pain and suffering right now, there's a really good chance that you'll never see the good in this life. There's a good chance that you might not see how God worked it together for good. There's a good chance that you won't get to see the fruit that comes from your pain. Do you have the faith to believe that even though you don't see the fruit, to believe that it still exists? Do you have the faith to believe that even though you might not see how God is making good of your pain, that he is? Because Stephen sees it now, now that he's dead, (laughs) you might not see the good that God's doing through your pain until after your death, until Christ returns. But I promise you that we serve a God who works all things together for good, who is never wasting pain, and who, because of that, means that we cannot be pure pessimists. We can experience the bad, we can sense the bad, we can feel the bad, we can not call white black and not call black white, but we can feel the bad and in the midst of that, believing that God is good in ways that we can't even see and fully understand. When you take on the name Christian, you're saying, I believe in a sovereign God who works all things together for good and I lose my right to be pessimistic. Tertullian was a church father from Africa and legend has it, or the story has it, that he came to faith while seeing someone being murdered for their faith. And he says this, we are not a new philosophy, talking about Christians, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So here's a man who came to faith seeing the boldness of people while they're being murdered for their faith. And he's the one who's saying the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is true as the gospel goes forward, but it's true in bigger, more comprehensive ways than that, that God never wastes our pain and he's always accomplishing his will even when we don't see it. Second thing we lose. We lose our right to cling to the status quo, or our culture's normative way of viewing the world. And we see this in verses 19 and 20. So um, same passage just read, um, that these Jews went out fleeing the persecution, and some of them spoke to no one except Jews. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you're probably going, this whole Jew-Gentile thing is getting really old, because every single week, there's this theme of the Jews not liking the Gentiles, and the Christians needing to repent of their infighting and racism. It's a weekly theme. I'm literally preparing my sermon and going, this is getting old. I'm tired of talking about this. It's exhausting for me to talk every single week, and you're probably going, say a new thing, and I'm going, well, the Bible says the same thing again and again and again. It's the Jews, even after they become Christians, still are racist against the Gentiles. And so these Christians, still dealing with their racism, go out avoiding the Gentiles and only talk to the Jews. But then some of the Christians are able to go and overcome the status quo and are able to reach out across the... Um, across ethnic and language lines, even in some cases, and they're able to go past what the culture says they're allowed to do, and they're sharing with everyone. And so when you become a Christian, as these Christians do, there's a lot they have to give up. Their culture's normative way of viewing race goes away. There is a new way that Christians are called to view ethnic diversity and ethnic um, divide, and it's to bridge the gap, to listen, and to be one, that there's no longer two, but there's now one in Christ. And so a lot of the times what we as Christians want to do, and I do this all the time, is I want to be a moderate follower of Jesus. I want to follow Jesus to the extent in which it doesn't make me socially awkward or weird. I want to follow Jesus to some good extent where nobody's going to think that I'm some kind of weird person. I want to follow Jesus moderately. But we can't, you cannot follow Jesus moderately (laughs) there's only radical devotion to Christ and things we need to repent of (laughs) there's only those two things and so here Christians are throwing off their culture status quo view of race but a lot of us myself included need to throw off other things that our culture is calling normal that the Bible calls abnormal Maybe it's the Christian view of sexual ethics. Maybe it's our view of money. Maybe it's our view of serving the poor. Maybe it's our view of the less fortunate. Maybe it's our view of whatever it is. Is there a place in your life where you feel more loyal to the culture's status quo than to Christ? Even this word Christians that happens at the end of verse 26, they are called Christians, is inherently loaded politically. It was the way they talked about, um, the way the word is formed is like saying that they would call Caesarists or Herodists or people who are loyal to Caesar, people who are loyal to Herod, but here they're saying people who are loyal to Christ, that there's this preeminent loyalty to Jesus above all other loyalties. And a lot of times in our culture, the church gets wedded with certain political parties, wedded with certain ideologies, and wedded with things that are not Christ. We cannot cling to different versions of their status quo and be followers of Jesus. And I'm thankful that these Christians mild it for us, but what are, what are some of the ways that you sense a higher loyalty to the culture as normal than to the vision that Christ has laid out for us? Write them down, pray, ask the Spirit that you'll become more self-aware in the ways in which I, Seth Trout, am loyal to the culture and not loyal to Christ. The third thing we lose is we lose the right to make it about us. And this is all over the passage, and we see it in three different ways. The first way is at the very end. There's this church in Antioch, and they're doing pretty well. Lots of people are coming to the Lord, it's growing, it's healthy, giving's probably going well, the budget's not a problem. They're building a building, it's going good. None of that's like actually what's happening, but it's kind of what's happening. But then they find out that there's another church that's having real difficulty and pain. And so this healthy, big church sends money, resources, and leaders to this hurting other church. And so it's not about each individual local church doing well, but it's about every local church doing well. It's not about Redemption Gateway being a great, healthy church. It's about the kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in heaven everywhere, that we do not want to be the type of church that competes with and talks trash about and slant takes easy stabs at other churches because we do it this way, they do it that way. Rather, we want to support and resource and partner with other churches all over the valley as much as possible. Because it's not about us as a congregation, just like it wasn't about Antioch as a congregation. It's about Christ and his kingdom and his church everywhere. And so it's not about us as a church. But then also what we see here is it's not about us in our positions. Barnabas, um, let's read with me in verse 22. So the church is growing, it's going really well, and the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the church is growing well. The church goes, Barnabas is a great stud leader. Let's send him to Antioch. And he'll be able to kind of help give some direction there. Verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people are at it. So Barnabas is there. It's going well. People are becoming Christians. They're encouraged. It's nice. But a bunch of people come to Christ. And Barnabas goes, I can't do this on my own. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to go get Saul. So this kind of shows awareness in Barnabas' mind in two senses. One, Barnabas is kind of aware of his leadership ceiling. He's going, this is getting bigger than I can handle on my own. And for him to bring Saul on and lead with him, that involved him losing power. He went from being the guy to being one of the guys. He went from being the head guy to being one of the people. And so Barnabas is Christ-like in the way that he gives away power and is enabling and empowering this younger Christian named Saul to get opportunities and reps. So Barnabas goes from being the guy to being one of the guys, But then also what we see is Barnabas isn't just thinking about him, his own development, and his own agenda, but he's also thinking about Saul. Because when Saul became a Christian two chapters ago, he did so on the basis that God was calling him to reach the Gentiles. And so Barnabas is here going, look at all these Gentiles becoming Christians. Who did God call to do this? Saul, Saul's gifted at this. Saul, you're called to do this, come with me. And so Barnabas is not just aware of him, but he's also aware of Saul, what Saul's calling is, and what Saul's needs. And so Barnabas, even in his leadership, isn't making it about him, but he's also making it about bringing up and developing Saul. And a lot of times we tend to compete with people with similar giftings as us. I'm totally competitive. If I was serving on guest services, I would probably spend a lot of the time thinking about how I could be the best guest services person better than those people. If I was making coffee, I'd be thinking, how can I make the coffee better than them? How could I, when I'm preaching, I have to really work against not comparing myself to Luke and Josh because I wanna, not because I'm trying to learn from them, because in my mind, I'm in an evil way trying to size myself up. But Barnabas brings on Saul, who eventually overtakes him and goes beyond where Barnabas was as far as leadership. So much of our identity comes from comparing and competing with other people. Whether it's serving in guest services, leading in RC, at work, at home, their kids, our kids, their income, our income, our house, their house, our sermon, their sermon, our room, their room. When you take on the name of Christ, the source and power of your identity comes from the name of Christ. It comes from the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It does not come from your performance compared to other people's performance. Are there ways in which you are tempted to find your identity as it compares to other people? Because when we take on the name of Christ, we lose our right to compare ourselves to other people. And rather, we're called to do what God's called us to do. And the third way in which we lose our right to make it about us is these nameless people in this passage. Look at this, happens a couple of times here. Um, Verse 20. But there are some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene. What were their names? We don't know. Look in verse 29. Send relief to the brothers living in Judea. What are their names? I don't know. Can you imagine being these people and the book of Acts comes out 20 years later? And you go, oh, I'm in there. Look for your name. And you're you're lumped in with the brothers. Like, Barnabas gets his name in there. What a jerk. You know, like... Uh, how come Barnabas gets his name in the Bible like five times and I'm lumped in under the brothers or the disciples? Do you think they did, reacted like that at all? I would imagine they'd be tempted to. Whether they did or not, I don't know. But all these, the nameless people in the book of Acts is a huge thing you can see. All these people serving and contributing in significant, meaningful ways that wouldn't have, like, if they weren't there doing what they were doing, the story would look completely differently. And yet, only some people get their name in the Bible. Thinking about that even in terms of Mother's Day. All the thankless tasks that mothers do all the time, every day, 16 hours a day or more, Who's thanking you? You know, you might be lucky to get flowers on Mother's Day later on, you know, once people come to their senses, but, but until then, it's pretty thankless for like 25 years, hypothetically. So. Or think about all the different people who just serve in all these different ways, unseen and unthanked and yet they're doing significant kingdom work. And so I, th- I recognize that even in my own heart, I had a mentor one time tell me, you need to do something that's costly to you that serves other people and tell zero people about it. And that's an important thing for your own spiritual development. I remember thinking like, sure, that's fine, that's easy. And so I went and did something and it like every person I saw for the next week, like I just so badly wanted to tell them, did you, did I, I wanted to tell them what I did. So like it was just eating me on the inside that I wanted to get the praise of people. I wanted to make it about me when I was kind of supposed to be serving God. Remember I met with him like a week later and he said, "Did you do it?" I said, "Yeah, let me tell you about what I did." And he said, "No, that's not the point. You're not supposed to do that." <laughs> and I think that's a really important spiritual discipline for us as people who want to follow Jesus is to serve, find a way to serve in thankless, unseen ways and see in which way it eats out at your insides because you so badly want to be named in the scriptures. So we lose the right to make it all about us. The fourth thing we lose is our right to be in a hurry. You can see two verses here. This is verse 26. So Barnabas goes and gets Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. I'm going to read one more verse here on... Uh, Galatians 2. So after, after this happens, they're there for a whole year, and then the need arises, and Paul and Barnabas go to Judea in verse 30. They did not do it, and they sent Barnabas and Saul to there. So Paul comes to Antioch, spends a year there, and then after a year, he goes to Judea. And this verse right here kind of blew my mind. This is Galatians 2.1, and Paul says, he's writing a letter to the Galatians, And he's talking about when he goes to Judea here. He talks about his conversion. And then he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And so here's why that's significant. Is that in the book of Acts, Paul got saved. He became a Christian two chapters ago. But then here, it's kind of like 14 years later. And a lot of times I read the book of Acts, and it's really easy for me to get discouraged because it's like, every paragraph, significant stuff is happening. Miracles, healings, people come to faith. Miracles, healings, people come to faith. Racial boundaries crossed, money raised, people served. And it's like bam, 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 every single chapter. And you read through the 30 chapters of Acts and you go, man, our church is nothing like that. But I tend to forget that the book of Acts actually happens over a period of like 30 years. And that Paul, when he goes to Antioch to lead, It's 13 years after he became a Christian. It feels like it was just two chapters ago, because it was, but this book of Acts takes place over the course of 30 years. Do you find yourself reading Acts and getting discouraged at how it feels like God is moving slower now than he used to? This church is only eight years old. What's this church going to be like in 22 more years when the church is 30 years old. We live in a culture that wants feedback and wants uh, to see change really, really quickly, whether it's fast food or lose weight quickly this way things or seven quick steps to fill in the blank. Nobody wants a five-year weight loss plan. People want a seven-day lose 30 pounds plan. (laughs) And a lot of times we look at our spiritual growth the same way. think, I've been a Christian a year. How come I'm not leading a church yet? I've been a Christian for six months. How come I don't know everything about the faith yet? I've been a Christian five years. How come I still, and we feel this almost sense of guilt and shame that we're not further along in our faith than we are. And a lot of times, even if we think about our subconscious view of time, like when you're you're a child, a week feels like eternity, and then when you're in high school, you pretty much can only think in terms of quarters, you know, this quarter, next quarter, and by the time you're in high school, you start to think in terms of semesters, and then maybe as you get older, you start to think in terms of years, but how many of you in this room have a vision or a subconscious view of yourself of how I'm going to be as a mature man or woman of God in 13 years? Because it took Paul 13 years before he came and led at Antioch. There's no get mature quick scheme in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. The only like, acceleration you get in maturing is suffering. <laughs> it's not painless and it's not quick. It takes time. And so maybe you've been following Christ for a year and you kind of feel like I should know more. And maybe you've been following Christ for five years and you feel like I should be not struggling with this anymore. But I want us to think that like we cannot, we lose the right to be in a hurry when we see the way the scriptures teach of what the time it takes to mature as humans. It takes a long time. I am 26 and I can't even wrap my head around what's gonna be like to be 40. It just feels like 14 years is a long chunk of time. And to go from when Paul became a Christian to when he was at Antioch, going to give help at Judea was about 14 years. That's a huge chunk of time. And I think that we should spend more time as Christians both being patient with our development and having a vision for ourselves that's longer than a semester long, that's bigger than two years from now, but 14 years from now. How can we think in longer term chunks rather than short term chunks? Those are all things we lose. Um, one thing we gain. The one thing we gain is the hand of the Lord. happened We see this in the very beginning of the passage. Verse 21. "So they're preaching to the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So these people go out, they're challenging the status quo, they're participating in God's mission, they're doing what God has called them to do, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And so this hand of the Lord is a theme that comes out a lot of times in the scripture, and it's not just God's presence, I don't wanna minimize that, God is with them always. But the hand or the arm of the Lord is symbolic of not just God's presence, but God's power that he is empowering and enabling and mobilizing and moving. And when they're tempted, he enables them to overcome. When they hit roadblocks, he enables them to be bold. When they're tempted to be fearful, he gives them courage to proclaim. And I think about even in Isaiah 52, which is a prophecy of the coming gospel, the way he describes the gospel is, after Christ is raised from the dead that the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So God literally is flexing at people, scaring them back, who are standing against his mission in the world, which is to proclaim Christ is risen everywhere. That God is working cosmic renewal, erasing the divide between Jew and Gentile. He's erasing the divide between lost and found. He's taking people who were once far off and bringing them near. He is pouring out his renewal over all mankind and anything that gets in his way, he's gonna flex at Him. <laughs> The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but it's a matter of power. In Acts 1-8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses and when the spirit comes, you will receive power. That we as Christians have a very low view of God's presence, much less his power. And so when we're tempted and we fail and we fail and we fail, we have this choice. Do we walk into defeat and shame Or do we sense and tap into and walk into the power of God to help us overcome? Alexander the Great was great. He conquered lots of things. He's a big deal. He was huge back in the day. And one of the things that people would do um, for ways of kind of trying to tap into that Alexander power or whatever is they'd name their kids Alexander. So there's all these, in Alexander the Great's kingdom, there's all these kids running around named Alexander, and it was kind of like, Alexander's courageous, I'll name my son Alexander, and then he'll grow up and be courageous. And so one time he's working in like their hangout place for the military people, whatever that is, and one of his commanders comes to him and says, Alexander, there's this guy named Alexander who's a huge coward. And Alexander the Great says, send him to me. And the guy comes up, and Alexander sees his namesake and says, young man, were you named for me? And the guy's trembling. He says, yes I was, sir. And he says, then get courageous or change your name. And I think a lot of times, we think that that's how God talks to us. You call yourself a Christian? Well then get your crap together or stop calling yourself a Christian. That's not how the father talks to us. That's not the way he treats his children. He doesn't lead with shame and guilt in saying get better or else. He says, my son, my kindness leads to repentance. He says, let me enable you to follow me more closely. He says, I died for your sin, so don't believe that your sin disqualifies you from remaining a Christian. He says, you're trying to follow me and you keep doing shame to my name and I know that and that was part of the cost that I counted when I saved you. That you'd call yourself a Christian, that you'd repeatedly fail, that you'd lack courage, that you'd walk in sin, that you'd wander far off, but guess what? The call to us as Christians is not shape up or ship out, but it's come forward all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That we as Christians who bear the name of God always are breaking the third commandment and God is there always giving us grace saying, follow more closely. And I get the sense that a lot of people in this room recognize the way in which they bring shame to the name Christian. So much so that you might not want to tell people that you're a Christian because you go, I don't want to associate myself with Christ. But I hope you sense that Christ on purpose associated with you and that he on purpose is giving you his power that he has a long-term vision for your development as a believer and that he is not interested in short-term fixes but he's interested in a law f- in a long lifetime path in which you messily follow after him let me pray and they're going to respond with some songs father you are so good to us That we who call ourselves Christians don't represent you well a lot of the time. But yet you still give us grace. You still, in kindness, lead us into repentance. I pray that we can have a long-term view for ourselves in the same way that you have a long-term view for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.